Hello and welcome everyone to episode two of Making Sense. My name is Emil Kalinowski and I am of course joined by Jeff Snyder, CIO of Alhambra Investments. Of course, that's his day job. By night though, he is in the shadows studying the global monetary system and he's here today to talk about three of the articles, maybe more, but we're going to start with three of the articles that he wrote this week that I think uh, will, will reveal some things that you don't hear about in the mainstream financial press. Jeff, great to hear, you, hear and see you again. Good to see you too, Emil. You know, it, it, I'm glad that we're doing this because we, I get a lot of feedback from readers and especially even longtime readers that, you know, this is really complicated material, very complex stuff. It's, it's certainly for most people, it's the first time in their, their adult lives or professional lives that they're running across some of the things that we're going to talk about. And so, you know, what a lot of people say is, you know, hey, take the time to explain these things to us so we can really understand when you get into the deep dives. And I want to let, I want to let our listeners know, I want to let our viewers know that this is, you know, this, this the podcast that we're doing now is part of a larger project where we intend to do that very thing. We're going to try to give you all the tools all of the data, all of the frame, you know, try to put together a good framework so that you can on your own understand what's really going on in the system. So in addition to doing this podcast, which Emil has, is, is generously donating his time to, to help me do and put together, we've also got a couple other people that are working behind the scenes with us, putting together what we hope will be a comprehensive, collaborative Eurodollar University that allows us to, in addition to the podcast, put together discrete individual episodes or modules that go over basic topics like repo. What is repo? What is securities lending? How does it work? How does it fit into this, this, this weird zoo-like monetary hole? Well, we're going to tell you. We're going to do that over the coming weeks and months, and we hope that will at least help people understand what's happening now and get a sense of what that will mean for the future. So just, you know, for a first step of inviting people to go through the looking glass, you know, looking at, at looking at it because it really is like Alice falling into Wonderland. That's what this podcast is. It's just an introduction into what we hope will be a much, much larger project. And in the meantime, people are more than welcome to put comments in the in the YouTube page in the section below the video. Just put comments, questions that you have. We're going to write down all the questions and get to as many of them as we can. And the, uh, the more we do these shows, the more often we'll be able to answer these questions. Perhaps at the end of the show, we'll get to some of the listener questions. And if we don't, then we'll just set aside a specific episode where we'll go over some of the questions that we have received. Jeff, today I received an email from dictionary.com and the word was, I thought, absolutely perfect, sialism. Word of, that's the word of the day today, sialism. It's spelled S-C-I-O-L-I-S-M. It's a noun, and it means superficial knowledge. That's what the whole show is about. We're trying to make sense. We're trying to get rid of the superficial knowledge that we hear from the technocratic corners. And to do that, we're going to dive into three of your articles. Before we do that, though, how are we going to segue to that? Well, this is an amazing coincidence. Today's word of the day is sialism from dictionary.com. Sialism was also the word of the day for Merriam-Webster on March 23rd, 2009. I know you remember that day very well because 
that was the day that the S&P 500 was, rose for the first time above its low and it had gained 20%, meaning the bull market was in effect from March 9th through March 23rd, 2009. Silism was the word of the day then. It identified the perfect day for the 20% bull market run. And here we are again, 11 years later, we had a big fall. And on March 23rd, 2020, uh, we recorded an intraday low to date. Then through Thursday, we had reached a new, we had, you know, we had uh, appreciated 20% on the S&P 500, meaning that officially the bull market is in play. It may be the shortest bull market in history, but I bring all this up because I love words and also I thought it was an interesting coincidence and because it is the first item on your article that you wrote that I'd like to draw everyone's attention to. And if you don't mind me sharing a, your, my screen here, and here it is, three short run factors that don't make a long run difference. Jeff, what is the first factor? And then move right on into the second and third ones as well. Well, I think the three factors that are driving the market to rebound from its, its, its low, its recent low, the first one is what I think everybody is very familiar with, short covering, fear of missing out, um, professional money managers that are desperate to get back in the market to bake back some of what they just lost. There's this idea that, hey, this might be a short-term thing. Therefore, we got to rush back in as soon as it looks like it's all clear. You know, Groundhog Day, think of the groundhog seeing a shadow or not seeing a shadow. As soon as it's over, everybody got to get back into the market because if it's a short run thing, we're right back into new highs and all that stuff. That's what everybody believes. And this happens all, every time that we get into this kind of a situation. So that's the first thing driving the market is um, stock investors are itching to get back in after such a big downdraft. I know Second, that. I've personally been getting messages from uh, friends and colleagues. Is now a good time to buy? It's, you know, I'm no, I'm the worst trader in the world, but uh, it, yeah, it, Neil, it's on everybody's mind. You know, when do you get back in? And it, it's it, the first instinct after the first real downdraft is the sooner, the better. As soon as it's clear, it must be over with. And that's never how it actually happens. And that leads us into the second thing that's driving what I think is this rebound of the market is faith in fiscal stimulus. Now, everybody, you know, the market's put aside the Federal Reserve. It's shot bazooka after bazooka. And, Obviously, those didn't work. Not even the stock market responded to the biggest QE ever, which is, a, is a, ma a massive paradigm shift in how the markets are behaving. So that just leaves the fiscal side of things to run how we're going to get out of it or what people think we might be able to get out of it. If, if the government spends money, if it sends checks to individuals, helicopter money or not, whatever it is, there's a pervasive belief, well, maybe that will work. Maybe that will be the thing that shortens the market event and there that will lead us back into record highs and everything else. So faith in fiscal stimulus is the second thing because, you know, why not? Maybe it will work. Size maybe matters. I just want to jump in here quickly because you said that uh, even the stock market didn't respect the Fed's uh, all-in QE, which, and, and I, but people might say, but the stock market's up since then. But the day of, right, the day of Monday, they announced at 8 a.m., we're going to be giving away money to the first 100 million people that come to our window. We'll just be giving it away. And the stock market fell down that way, fell that day. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's right. And it wasn't until they started getting serious about the fiscal side that the market rebounded. Uh, so it was. It wasn't. You know, I don't. I don't believe it was the Fed that created the, the conditions for the rebound. And that leaves us with the third factor, which I think is the most important factor, which is these, which are these calendar bottlenecks or seasonal quirks in, in, that are, that are uh, a regular part of the baseline underlying conditions for this global monetary system. You see it time and time again. Two weeks before these quarter ends, it creates a problem. And everybody, I think, is familiar with the idea of window dressing where dealers are during a, a particular calendar period are out there doing a whole bunch of stuff, some of which they might be, might not want to disclose to people. Therefore, as they get closer to a reporting period, which you know every quarter end, they have to at least publish their uh, unaudited balance sheet results, they pull back in a lot of things. And so it creates these seasonal low points in liquidity, which exposes problems when there are large problems. You know, Bear Stearns failed two weeks before the quarter end in mid-March, uh, mid-September of 2008. Lehman Brothers AIG, all of that stuff happened two weeks before the quarter end. Last September's repo problem, two weeks before that quarter end. And then of course, this, this latest downdraft, which has become you know, the proportions of a financial crisis, again, mid-March, two weeks before the quarter end. So we hit that mark uh, last week. We got to the middle of the quarter end and things started to get, you know, uh, looked like they started to turn around. I think a lot of it had to do with some of that pressure from the seasonal quirk that we're abating because we had gotten past that point. Now we're, we're coming into the actual quarter end, which is another kind of calendar bottleneck, but that big one in the middle of March, we got past it. And uh, I think there's a little bit less pressure systemically because of it. I wanted, I wanted to find some of our terms. So you're saying dealers are doing things that they don't want to be recognized at quarter end by the regulators, by their shareholders. Now, when you say dealers, who, who are the dealers and who are they then going to asking for uh, investments that will make their books look better? Non-dealers, right? And so who are these two parties? I know, can you explain that? Well, dealers are any bank in the, in the we're not talking just specifically about the primary dealers, which is a certain subset of um, this, this overall whole. When we talk about dealers, we're talking about any large bank and I suppose it could be middle, medium level banks too, but mostly large banks that engage in, engage in money dealing activities, which means they're counterparties in repo markets, they're lending unsecured in federal funds or euro dollar deposit, whatever it might be. So it, it's a, a large group of banks scattered all throughout the world that engage in risky behavior amongst themselves, as well as with non-banks and smaller banks scattered all throughout the world. So it's a global system where at the center of it are these large banks that deal in in dollars outside the United States and inside the United States too. And when they do that, you know, whatever it is they're doing for reasons that, you know, that are, I think pretty obvious, they don't want to disclose the level or even the individual uh, transactions that are, take, that are taking place or their portfolio positions that are happening. So they, they, you know, we get to these quarter ends reporting periods, they pull back and they, they try to present a much sounder picture to the public. By a systemic problem. By reaching out to what pension funds, insurance companies, somebody who can swap uh, the assets, is that correct? So that their books look cleaner? Is, is how, how do they bridge that calendar reporting period? How do they do it? What's the mechanism? Well, there isn't a single mechanism. It's, it's basically an entire menu of possibilities, all based on, you know, what does it cost to do it? 
uh, there's derivatives, there's, there's all sorts of ways to, to rejigger your, your, your balance sheet so that when you present it to the public, it looks better than it maybe, you know, that, that's that's subje subjective term, but that's the idea here is we, we don't want to purport everything that we're doing because we want to look a certain way. We want our certain metrics to be exactly what we think the public wants them to be. And so there's any number of ways to do it, but overall what we're talking about here is as they're doing it, they're pulling back from some of the activities that the system needs them to provide for the rest of the system. And what that does is it sucks liquidity down to a low enough level. You know, think about the tide rolling out then exposing all of the, the flaws on, on the beach, for, for example. That's what happens. It creates a seasonal low point where if you have an actual systemic liquidity problem, that's when it gets revealed to the world. As I said, in Bear Stearns, Lehman, last September's repo, and obviously uh, what just happened a couple weeks ago. And for our audience, right now I'm sharing another article. So we're discussing the article that you wrote today, and that's your third point in that art. Not today, you didn't. You wrote it this week. But that third point, you develop much more in another article called "Regularity of the Tales," which you wrote five years ago, and it's only come to pass ever since then. And let me share for the audience what we were talking about right now. And you, what you can see here, what I'm showing here are fails. So primary dealers, uh, a subset of banks, and fails of repurchase agreement, overnight repurchase agreements, which is a secured overnight loan where you ask for a little bit of cash and you put up some collateral, US Treasury securities, and then the next day, it's all reversed, except what we see sometimes, incredibly, unbelievably, is that uh, the collateral doesn't get returned because, as we'll be discussing in other episodes, uh, the collateral is worth more, perhaps, to the system than the cash. And so what we're looking at over here is since August 17th through the most recently reported data, and this is all available for our audience listeners at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And what this shows is fails of just US Treasury securities as a percentage of total financing that primary dealers are taking on. And over here, we see something that occurred back in late 2017 that you wrote about at the time that was alerting us that globally synchronized growth was coming to an end. But that's for another show. What we're discussing right now is that we have passed one of these spikes. Uh, the most prominent one was the one that occurred in September. And then there's one that just occurred right now, as you were discussing, but it got lost in all the commotion of the virus. So people don't realize it. They don't place as much weight on it. Of course, if you're following the, what's happening in the shadows, this, this is very important that we've now passed this calendar squeeze. But I turn it over back to you, Jeff. So should we move on to the next article? Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it, we've got what is a, sort of a dichotomy. And it, it's, a, it's another factor that relates to how economics has done such a poor job of alerting the public and educating the public to how the system actually works, and largely because economists have no idea themselves how this, this actually works. And that's the difference between, you know, what we see in, say, collateral or perhaps LIBOR versus, say, federal funds and other money to money rates. Because, you know, you're, what we think about when we think about a, 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 certainly a monetary crisis or a monetary panic 
you think it's or money rates should skyrocket. I mean, that's, that's what it says in all the textbooks. That's what it's, that's what you're taught from day one. If we have a panic, we should see money rates go through the roof. It's simple supply and demand. But yet, that's not what we find out. In fact, during some of the worst parts of 2008 crisis, it was the opposite. And we're seeing it now, to, uh, right now, today, this week, where, um, you know, federal funds rate, even GC repo rate, software, which is, you know, supposed to be the next big thing, all of these rates are falling and they're very low. Software is at one basis point, which is, I mean, I mean, that sounds terrific, doesn't it? Here we are talking about monetary crisis, a global monetary crisis. And the main financing rate that's supposed to describe general liquidity conditions for all U.S. dollar markets is at one basis point. So, you know, there, what, what's, there's, there's something going on here that's not the way that we're taught, not the way we're supposed to think about how a monetary crisis in a, in a period of general illiquidity actually works. And so the, the article that covers that, you wrote, let me see here. No, not this one. Right on cue, low money rates are not what you think. I've, I thought this was your, well, this is the article that was more, most revelatory to me because it didn't occur to me that not everything is being captured in these rates. And what's not being captured is in the extremes more important than what's being reflected. So as you, as you were saying, uh, we are recording some lows. Great. The Federal Reserve has done exactly what supposed to, they're supposed to have done. But that's not what you explained here in this article. Yeah, and I think, you know, what it starts out as, uh, you know, we have to realize that something like federal funds, there isn't a single rate. Yeah, that's what gets published in the paper or on the internet. There's an effective federal funds rate, but it's not a single rate that applies to every single transaction that happens during a day. It's actually just a weighted average of all sorts of transactions, all sorts of funding trades that go on across a whole range of interest rates and interest costs and, and volumes, you know. There's different, different for every a counterparty that shows up looking for cash in federal funds. And so we start out with the federal funds market. We have to understand that the effective federal funds rate is a weighted average of all the transactions that do take place. And so, you know, if, if we go right to uh, right where you were talking about, let me uh, let's go back to that on that article. Right on cue, money rates are not what you think. Right, and so let's let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go through a simple, very stylized example of a of a you know a, a hypothetical federal funds market. So let's assume that there's 120 million dollars on offer, and it, as you can see on the screen, it's broken down to you know 10 million for foreign bank A, 50 million for foreign bank B at the rates uh, specified here, and the domestic bank get a little bit better of a rate because they they're perceived to be a little bit less risky being at a domestic bank. So. You know, 50 million for bank A and 50 million or 10 million for domestic bank B. And overall, you put those things together, even though there's four different transactions at different volumes across the market, for that day, the, the effective weighted average or the effective federal funds rate comes out to exactly 1%. So that's terrific. That's, that's, we'll define that as normalcy. So let's assume day two now, uh, something happens, something spooks the cash providers. And so when these four banks come into the federal funds market on day two, what they find is that you know it's a little bit harder to negotiate cash uh, uh, overnight transactions. 
So they get charged a little bit higher of a rate, each one of them uh, across the entire spectrum. And as it works out, on the example I put together here, the weighted average of the effective federal funds rate on day two is, is brought up 3.6 basis point from the previous day. And that's what you would expect in this, that kind of a situation. That's what we're all taught. When, when money becomes tight, you know, dealers charge more for the risks of lending to unsecured counterparties. And so that looks like exactly what we're supposed to see. So if the defective federal fund rate goes up, that tells us that there's some illiquidity in the market. But let's go on to a hypothetical day three where things become even more extreme. In this more extreme scenario, what we're gonna assume is that uh, cash providers in the federal funds market no longer want to lend to our foreign banks at any price. What they've said is for reasons that, you know, we don't have to specify, we, we consider you guys too risky. So it doesn't matter what interest rate you're interested in paying us. We don't want it. We're going to give you $0 no matter what. But that still means that the, the, the 60 million that was being lent the day before to these foreign banks is going to go somewhere. And so we're, you know, where it's going to go is logically to the other two domestic banks that are showing up as borrowers in the federal funds market. So you have two things going on here where these foreign banks get shut out and the rest of the funds that, that normally would have gone to them gets dumped on a smaller and smaller group of you know, what are perceived to be less risky institutions. And all those two things combined actually drive the effective or the weighted average effective federal funds rate lower. So in this situation where the liquidity problem has become even more extreme, even worse than on day two, our hypothetical day three, what happens is the effective federal funds rate, because as you pointed out, Emil, it only captures the transactions that do take place, it ignores, more importantly, those that don't, the effective federal funds rate actually falls. And this is a situation that happened in 2008 repeatedly, where we had this divergence starting on August 9, 2007, between LIBOR and federal funds, where federal funds shrank well below the, the target rate, while LIBOR went way above. It's a uh, survivorship bias. As we, in some people that study stock returns over a long time, uh, you have to factor in survivorship bias of, because otherwise your rates of return look fantastic if you don't account for everyone that's been, uh, that went bankrupt over a long time. And uh, some, so there's something similar that's happening there in what you just explained. And I, I thought that was fantastic because that never occurred to me. I had fallen into the trap myself. I thought I'm living in, I was living in the day two world, basically, that uh, if rates go up, that's the sign of stress or at least spreads. If they go up, that's a sign of stress. If they go down, no. But now I understand how these rates are constructed. And again, it was the effect of federal funds rate, uh, general collateral rate. Is there any other rate that's functions similar where it's based on actual transactions? Yeah, the SAFA rate, which is the rate for, which is supposed to be the new rate that describes everything. So but the nobody... SAFA rate is, low, is lower than all the rest, which is, gives off some misleading impression that, hey, things are great out there liquidity-wise because this interest rate is down almost at zero. But nobody pays attention to that one, right? Yeah, it's everybody's the... still in LIBOR because, you know, LIBOR actually describes something different. LIBOR, the, the way that LIBOR is arrived at is it's a survey of banks that are operating in this London offshore US dollar market, the Euro dollar market. And what happens is the British Bankers Association asks these particular banks, what would they lend at in this interbank market if they were to lend regardless of whether they lend, it or lend anything or not? So basically, we're asking these banks to describe to us 
the behavior that they perceive or the riskiness, the, the, the perceptions of riskiness out there across the entire marketplace, regardless of whether they would lend into it or not. So LIBOR is, to me, more, much more accurate than either the federal funds rate or software or GC repo at the, in these particular times because the banks are telling them what they would do based on all of the considering all of the, the market participants that are out there looking for um, funding, funding transactions. And Jeff, I hate to be the bearer of bad news as you head into the weekend, but guess what? Of all the rates that we're concerned with, that's the rate that's rising. That's the one that's, despite the greatest liquidity events since NOAA, LIBOR rates are rising as if it doesn't even matter. And that's what your third article uh, covers. And here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Not good. Eurodollar futures curve sells off at the front. Now, this is, it's, it's filtering out into the wider um, uh, mainstream business press as well, but they don't talk about the euro dollar futures. They refer to uh, the spread between TED, the treasury, the three month treasury, the TED spread, OIS, FRA. Can you tell us a little bit um, how you look at what's happening with LIBOR and, and what's happening? What's happening in this article? Why are LIBOR rates rising? Again, if we if we look at it from the perspective of the British banks, they're, they're not necessarily British, but the, the the banks that are operating in London that give us the London the LIBOR uh, panel, what they're saying is they're perceiving increasing risk in the interbank markets. Now, sometimes that's perceived to be credit risk, and I know you know we were talking before Emil about how some people are attributing it to oh it must be credit risk, it must be recession risk, because it can't be liquidity risk, right? Uh, the Federal Reserve is doing all this money printing, therefore liquidity risk has to be off the table. Well, we both know that's not true because, you know, in the mainstream financial media, people talk about uh, the, the characterized conditions based on what Jay Powell is saying, not, not you know, not what the real condition is. And so it's let not necessarily credit risk. Let me just share with the audience, you know, what, what we were referring to. And it was this Bloomberg article that came out on the 9th. And it's why it matters that the FRA OIS spread is widening. And then his second paragraph, right now, so the spread is widening. And why, why is it a concern? Well, right now it boils down to deteriorating market sentiment about credit and recession risks rather than a genuine fear of a pullback in funding markets. Jeff, as you were saying, because, well, the liquidity is abundant because there's been a flood of liquidity. Thank you, uh, the Fed. But that's not what you, uh, that's not what you are. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the article's written on March 9th. So, I mean, it couldn't have been timed any better because over the next week or so, it, it, I mean, I doubt anybody would characterize that, that particular 10, 14 day period as anything like liquidity. Because, you know, fire sale conditions in pretty much every market around the world is not what you think about when you think about, oh, some distant recession risk. It was obviously credit risk, it was, or excuse me, it was obviously liquidity risk because that was, that was proven. And it didn't matter what the Fed did in response, the markets were becoming more and more and more illiquid as, as time progressed. And that's now being reflected in these higher, these higher uh, LIBOR spreads, like as you mentioned, FR, FRA OAS, which is the difference between three-month LIBOR and the overnight, overnight index swap, which is a futures market 
which attempts to price out where the Fed is going to um, land its federal funds rates in the future. The other one, as you mentioned before, was uh, the TED spread, which is the difference between three-month LIBOR and the three-month Treasury bill. Again, it's, it's a measure of risk that these banks are perceiving in the marketplace. And it's not just you know, risk today. And because they're, they're perceiving these risks, um, the TED spread has blown out to levels we haven't seen since uh, 2008. In fact, um, you know, LIBOR was up sharply yesterday in the TED, while, while at the same time, as you can see here, uh, at the same time, treasury bill rates are pegged down to zero and less than zero because of the, the demand for collateral. So you have this very big dis, this, this, this distance between the risk being priced out in LIBOR, being indicated in LIBOR, and the demand for those kinds of things in something like the treasury bill. So we have this TED spread now that is far and away above the highest it's been in some, since uh, 2008, which is an indication of liquidity risk inside the system. By, by those British association bankers, what would you lend at if you were forced to? And they say we would lend to way up here. Uh, and then comparing it to where treasury rates are taking place right now. Um, yeah, and the thing, Emil, I think that the more important thing is not just that the LIBOR and the TED spreads have risen, is that we get into other market indications like Euro dollar futures, what the Euro dollar futures curve is indicating currently is, you know, it's, it's saying that we expect or the market expects that this LIBOR spike isn't going to go away. So, I mean, you think about that, you know, the Fed has done all of these things, all of these supposedly massive things, as you said, it's the largest flood of stimulus, monetary stimulus since NOAA, and yet the markets are starting to price out a scenario where this illiquidity and this, this liquidity risk remains not just for the foreseeable next couple of days or even weeks, but possibly for months at a time. So, you know, if we look at the Euro dollar futures curve, for example, the front of it or the back end of it, as I'm showing you here, okay, there's a LIBOR spike after, after March 12th, which again, that's, that's the British banker saying, we, we, we don't like what we're seeing. We don't like what, what we think is going on in the marketplace right now, which, you know, I mean, that's obviously given what happened during that period, it, it makes a lot of sense. So the back end of the euro dollar futures curve, which by the way, because it gets settled in three months LIBOR, it's a market that has uh, that enormous potential to tell you what the market, what people are thinking about in terms of where LIBOR will be at certain points in the future. And this back end of the curve into you know next year and beyond, what the market is saying is it expects the Fed's zero interest rate policy or, or, or low LIBOR rates to persist well into the future, which by the way, is not a good thing. You know, low interest rates, especially low money rates for a prolonged period indicate that, you know, the central bank obviously doesn't believe things are good enough to raise, raise rates. So the back end of the market is saying, hey, we, we think that whatever's going on now, it's going to create problems down the road that, that linger, in, linger on into the future. But the real interesting thing is what happened, what's happening at the front end of the uh, euro dollar futures curve, which are all of these contracts that are up for maturity this year. As you can see, as LIBOR goes up, these same contract prices are indicating that the market expects this LIBOR spike to last perhaps months, if not late, into later this year. Again, no matter what the Fed has done, or matter, no matter what the Fed will do, the market is starting to get used to the fact that there's higher liquidity risks and they're going to stick around for a while. Right. What we're seeing with those green and blue lines is through April, through May, maybe even into June, uh, rates 
the banker, well, yeah, the rates are going to remain high because we feel that there's some sort of credit risk in the system. They're not impressed by what the central bank is doing. Uh, there's still distress inside the system. Yeah, no matter what the Jay Powell comes up with, you know, we saw this as, it, as, the, as the announcements came out, all these bazookas, they got bigger and bigger and bigger. They're completely unimpressive because they don't, they don't do much to solve the actual problems out there. Unfortunately, I don't think we have time to talk about, you know, all the ways that, what are those problems? You know, let's, let's be specific. We'll get to them as we go forward. But for right now, I think what we want, to, we want people to understand is that, you know, yes, the, the stock market has rallied, but underneath the surface, deep in, into these offshore shadows, there's still a lot of concern that, you know, not just risk, but actual illiquidity in the system, dysfunction, dislocations, that are going to produce or very likely to produce continuing problems for the foreseeable future. It's remarkable risk too. I, I what is what can the Fed do? I mean, J, Jay Powell and team are sitting there thinking, how can we force these LIBOR rates down? Is there, and the only way they can do it is by exhibiting or conveying uh, competence and instilling confidence in that British Banking Association network of banks. Is that right? Is that the only way? Well, that's, that's the way, you know, that's one place to start. But I mean, that's not how the Fed thinks. The Fed, the Fed really technically starts and ends with the federal funds market. So as long as the federal funds market to them is behaving, even if it's behaving like on our day three scenario, where it's an extreme indication of illiquidity, the Fed's going to say, well, you know, things are fine. The federal funds rate is within our mandate. We don't care about LIBOR because criminally, the US, the, the U.S. central bank is not a dollar central bank. It's an American central bank, and its mandate ends at the U.S. border. So when we're talking about offshore dollars, you know, they're kind of like, eh, not our problem, not our business. Except, you know, they're, they're not. I mean, that's why we have, that's why they instituted these overseas dollar swaps, because they recognize that the, the dollar problem is a global problem, but these dollar swaps are ineffective. They were definitely ineffective in 2008, and they're proving just as ineffective today because they cannot replicate the missing ingredients behind this very complex, very dynamic global dollar market. And so that's really what the problem is. The Fed has no way to plug into that system, and they don't really know what to do. So that's why they're just replaying all the stuff they did you know, 12 years ago. Well, dollar, well, we've run out of time, but dollar swaps is one of the... Uh, questions that we've gotten on in our comments section. Uh, why won't the dollar swaps work? So don't answer it now. We'll address it in a future show. So just to summarize, uh, there was some relief at the surface. The stock market rose. There, was, there will be a fiscal stimulus. Uh, the central bank did offer some money, although it didn't seem to uh, placate the, the stock market. Uh, but most importantly, we passed that calendar constriction, that, that funnel that we've seen over the last year. Uh, unfortunately, though, there's still more bad news. Ironically or paradoxically, the low rates we're observing, as well as the low rates we're observing in uh, which, which markets? The SOFR market, the GC collateral market, and the effective federal funds rate. And that's in distinction to what we're observing in LIBOR, where rates remain high and are anticipated to remain 
rather high relative to where the Federal Reserve would want to keep rates several months into the future. Uh, anything, did I, did I miss anything, Jeff, that we need to take away from this show? No, and I think, you know, again, as you pointed out, we'll get to some of these, we'll try to explain these things as we go along in more detail and just, and frankly, there's just not enough time, you know, we want to talk about the dollar swaps. We definitely want to talk about how that works in terms of the global system. We want to talk more about the global system and all of these different pieces within it. It's just, you know, what we're going to, what we're going to focus on in these making sense podcasts is more of the current events and doing what we can do as far as explaining how these things work out. And over time, we'll, we'll add to them. We'll, we'll add explainers about the various pieces and how it all fits together. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Have a good weekend. I will talk to you again next week. And for our audience, please leave questions, comments uh, in, in the YouTube comments section. And uh, we will get to them at some point, in, uh, either in a show or in a mailbag. And uh, thank you all very much, Jeff. Have a good weekend. You too, Emil. Take care.